When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where we talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation that I had with author Annie McKee about her new book, How to Be Happy at Work. We talk about what are some of the things that make us unhappy about work and identify those things so that we can eliminate or change them or have a proper perspective on them. Because Happiness is not all about emotions, but it's also about thoughts and perspective on where you are and what it is you're wanting to do and where you're wanting to go to. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome Annie McKee to the show. Welcome to the show, Annie. Thanks, Eric. Glad to be here. Um, I want to give you a kudos for the fact that you did not add a subtitle to your book. And most books these days are title and then two to three or four sentences about what the book is really about, because the title isn't that great. But you're, you have a great title, How to Be Happy at Work. Thank you. It was actually the working title, and then we all agreed, hey, that's it. So, uh, happy, happy at work. I, I, I don't get it. Like, isn't work supposed to be work? Like, why should we even have the option of thinking that we can be happy at work? <laughs> you know, it's true, Eric. That's such a good question. There's an old myth that says work has to be grueling and hard and unpleasant. And I don't know if that myth was ever valid or true or useful, but it, it surely isn't now when so many of us spend, you know, eight, nine, 10 hours a day at work. And then we get home and we reach into our pocket and we pull out our phone and we start email, you know, and if we're going to, if we're going to be miserable for a third of our waking lives or a third of our adult lives, even what, uh, what's that when it comes to a good life, that's not a good life. Even in the way that we talk about work, we're kind of intuitively implying that it can't be enjoyable because we've maybe believed some myth that, uh, or, or we're exhibiting symptoms of our own unhappiness. It's so true. Have you ever noticed how much complaining there is in the workplace? No, and no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And, and I think sometimes we don't even feel like complaining at work. We're having fun. We're having a good day. And we join in the conversation. It's somehow the thing to do to complain about the boss or the company or the, our jobs or what we're being asked to do, even when we don't feel like it. And I, I think it's time to just stop. We don't need to be part of those conversations and we don't need to be unhappy at work. You know, Eric, I um, I came to study this uh, sort of an indirect way. Most of my work has been about leadership and emotional intelligence and helping leaders, uh, you know, be more productive themselves, but also create cultures where people can be and do their best. And 
I realized after some years of supporting leaders to build those kind of cultures that we were missing something. And I, and I started to do some more research, you know, rereading interviews we'd done with people and that sort of thing. And it occurred to me that, in fact, we had missed something. People were telling us in these studies we did as clear as day that they wanted to be happy at work. They were tired of being miserable. They were tired of being bored. And they were telling us they felt that they, they were more effective and more productive when they were happy. So I really dug into it and tried to figure out, okay, what is happiness at work and how do we get there? Yeah. And, and, and to be clear, like, and, and maybe let me follow it up with a, a second question here. But first off, to be clear, we're not just saying, hey, you feel happy. You feel like it, being in a good mood. In other words, like every time you go to your job, whether that's at home or we work remotely or you work in an office or whatever it is you're doing, like it, it ultimately, is it realistic that we should expect to be happy 100% of the time? I, I don't think so. No, no. I mean, you know, life isn't perfect. It, it, it never will be. And we're not going to feel good 100% of the time or even feel happy 100% of the time. It's just not possible. Things happen in life. Things happen at work that make us sad or upset or angry. It's that I mean, that's just life. But I think we've got a long way to go before we get anywhere close to that 100% in the workplace. And you've probably seen the Gallup statistics about engagement. And year after year, their studies show that two-thirds of us are either neutral about work, which means we kind of don't care and we're bored, or actively disengaged, which means we're sabotaging ourselves and others. That's just unacceptable. Yeah, that's, I mean, because there's, those are two of the options. The third one is to actually actively uh, approach trying to be happy at work. And again, when we say happy, we're not just saying, you know, good, fluffy feelings of, of pleasantness or whatever. Like, in fact, let's go there. Like, what is your definition of what happiness is? Yeah, that's a great question too, Eric. And I think what you just said is really important. Being happy isn't just about feeling good. It's not uh, just about emotion. That's a part of it. When we're happy, we do tend to feel, you know, uh, fulfilled and, and we feel good, right? But that's only part of it. What I discovered is that in the workplace, happiness is comprised of, of three things. One, a sense of purpose, um, the belief that what we're doing is meaningful and that we're making a positive difference, that we're having impact on something or someone we care about. So that's number one. Number two, a sense of optimism and hope about our personal future, not just the organizational uh, vision or the organization's future, but where we're going and how work fits into that bigger picture of a vision for our personal lives too. So that's number two, hope. And number three, friendships good, solid, warm, trusting relationships, people that we can count on, knowing people count on us. That's what I've discovered is adds up to happiness in the workplace. And and when those things are in place, we do feel good. We tend to be more effective, more productive. We get more done. And frankly, our brains work better. And I think that those three things that you just said, let's see, the purpose and and hope and, and even friends are things that maybe we up till this point in our lives have maybe, you know, perpetuated by TV shows like The Office, etc. Um, we believe a myth that those three things can't exist 
in a day job. A day job is just something you go do so that you can pay your bills. Yeah, you bring up the television show, The Office, and for any of our listeners who have seen it, it's hilarious. And the reason it's hilarious is because it was an extreme case of what we've all experienced. A clueless boss, you know, a down, dejected culture. <laughs> and we've we've all experienced it. So it's kind of kind of funny. And unfortunately, we have accepted that as the norm. And I don't believe we need to. And there are things that we can do individually and collectively to move ourselves closer to fulfillment at work. And why not try? Yeah. So in relation to those things, what do you think are the keys to changing our perspective on the possibility that we can be happy in our career or our job, regardless of what position we're in? I think the first thing we need to do to move closer to happiness in the workplace is to give up these old myths that tell us we can't be or we don't deserve to be happy at work or that it's just a job and we should be happy we're getting a paycheck. Um, we've, We've got to let go of those old beliefs. They don't serve us well, especially in today's world where the boundaries between work and life really are blurred and we can work quite a lot, you know, and, and as I said earlier, we really don't want to be in a pers- in a situation where we're uh, unhappy a third of our adult lives. That's, that's just ridiculous. So number one, give up the old myths. And then, you know, Eric, we've got to look at ourselves. We've got to ask the question, am I contributing to my own dejection or unhappiness at work? Is there anything that I'm doing that is actually part of the problem rather than pointing fingers at the boss or the company. And, you know, I know there are bad bosses out there. I had one once, Eric, he was awful. The man was toxic. And I think a lot of our listeners have have had that experience. So it's not that there aren't external causes of unhappiness. There are, but there are also things that come from inside us. And I I call them happiness traps. These are things that we do to ourselves. I'll give you an example. Um, Overwork. We work too much. We can't be happy at work if work is all we do. And, and, and it's so easy to work all the time, especially if we're in, you know, professional jobs where it's hard to turn off. You know, you get home, you want to have a conversation with your kids. And before you know it, you're grabbing the phone and it's sliding closer to your dinner point, And you just think you'll do one more email. And before you know it, you haven't heard a word your kids said. And I, I'm seeing this as a real epidemic in the workplace. And you know what? We do it to ourselves for a lot of kind of strange reasons. Um, first of all, it's seductive, you know. Second of all, uh, you know, there's kind of a sense of keeping up with the Joneses. Well, everybody's working like that, so I better too, or somehow I'm going to be thought less of. And then there's this just kind of macho, hey, you know what, I can take it. And that goes along with, yeah, I only need four hours of sleep every night. Well, that's not true. You need eight. And overwork is a happiness trap that we do do to ourselves. And it takes a lot of self-awareness to figure out why we're doing it and then self-control to stop. Yeah, we don't because over time, I mean, this was ultimately the overwork trap was something that existed pre-smartphone. But boy, did that smartphone like catalyze it, like dropping Mentos into a, 
a can of or a, a you know a bottle of Pepsi or something, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. Fill up that bottle of soda with more sugar. You're so right. Um, I think Ariana Huffington calls uh, our devices the the snake in the Garden of Eden. You know? <laughs> oh wow, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and I love technology. I'm a I love gadgets and that sort of thing. So I don't have anything against it. But it really is important that we learn how to control ourselves and manage our devices rather than let them manage us. For sure. Yeah. And we've had a number of episodes specifically about that. So I'll list some of those in the show notes for this episode for people to take a deeper dive with that. But yeah, the, the, the technology just enables us to have this always on mentality when it comes to uh, our work. And it then bleeds into every other uh, you know, crevice of time in our lives. It really does. It really does. You know, you've got messages and messenger and checking Facebook and checking email and you better check that voicemail still too. It's ridiculous. And uh, again, I I love being active. I love my work. Um, I really like being in communication with people like a lot of our listeners probably do. But we got to let we got to set some boundaries. And you know, Erica, funny little statistic, a number of years ago, there was a study done on how many hours uh, uh, that Americans work. And as it turns out, we're working a full month more a year than we were 20, 25 years ago. And that study was done a few years ago. I bet it's gone up. Last I checked, there were 12 months in the year. So where's that time coming from? It's coming from our families and our exercise time and our downtime and our reading time and our go for a walk time. Oh, totally. Yeah. And, and we've got to cl- reclaim that time. We have to. We do. We burn up and we burn out. Stress is a real happiness killer, and overwork is one of the surest ways to get there. Still searching for a great candidate for your company? Don't search. Just match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch that busy work. Instead, use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. I wish I had Indeed when I was in the hiring process in roles in the past because it is a slow, arduous headache of a process to find the right people, or at least it used to be, join more than three 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to find and hire great talent fast. In fact, in the minute I've been talking to you, 23 hires were made on Indeed according to Indeed data worldwide. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash to-do list. Just go to Indeed.com slash to-do list right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash to-do list. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you enjoy Beyond the To-Do List, I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans. I'm Sarah Hart Unger, the host of Best Laid Plans, a podcast devoted to all things planning and planning adjacent. I talk about everything from paper planner reviews to deep dives into all things productivity, from keeping track of goals and tasks to fitting in your true priorities and reducing the stress around planning and organizing across different areas of life. I am a practicing physician and mother of three, so I have a lot going on in my own life and am intimately familiar with the time constraints that impact us all. And I love sharing my own productivity strategies and learning from others who have their own ideas to share. I invite you to check out Best Laid Plans, available on all podcast platforms, or visit my website, theshoebox.com, T-H-E-S-H-U, box.com to learn more.
So say we start to get a handle on that. That still doesn't mean we're necessarily going to be happier at work, although it's going to start us in the right direction. What about hope? Yeah, um, a lot of times I've encountered leaders who think that an organization's vision is motivating enough for people to keep them going and keep them excited about the future. And you know, even in the best organizations with even a noble vision, it's not enough. So I and some of my colleagues, Richard Boyatzis in particular, have been looking at what does it take to really fill us with hope and keep us fueled and ready to go and resilient, even when we encounter those, you know, normal challenges, big and little, that we all face at work and in life. And what we've discovered is that People need a vision of the future that is truly personal, that includes aspects of personal life like relationships, family, um, health and well-being, whatever we love to do, and of course, work, learning, mastery, all those kinds of things. It's a very, very personal journey getting to the point of having a vision that incorporates work, but isn't just about work. And when we've got that kind of a vision in front of us, it's amazing how much better we can deal with stress, how much more resilient we are, how much more we can tolerate when it comes to challenges and obstacles, because we know where we're going. And so this is a case where it really, the hope and the vision of our future doesn't necessarily have to be tied with our workplace or our current workplace. It has to do more with, I am on the right track. I have things going for me, or I am working on things to better myself. I am making progress in that sense. And so even if I'm not totally happy at work, I will be happier than I would have been at work if I were miserable in the rest of my life. Is That's that what you're absolutely- saying? Yeah, Eric, that's absolutely right. This kind of a vision, which anybody can do, and listeners, you know, take a, a your computer out or your tablet or a pad of paper sometime next weekend and sit down for a couple of hours and think about the aspects of your life that really matter to you. It's a little bit different for everybody, but relationships, family, health and well-being usually make the list. And then there are a few other things too. I'm not sure what they are for you, but you can you can really figure that out and then start writing. What would you like your life to look like in five, 10 years? And pretend you're you're there already and just write what a normal day's like. And sure, work's going to be there. Most of us really do love our work and we want to be fulfilled with our work. And writing a vision like that or thinking about it, reflecting on it is going to, frankly, feel good. And the intentions that you actually put out there are going to help you Start to plan, start to think about what you can do to get there, which, of course, is also part of hope. We can't just have that vision. We've got to have plans, too. Now, for those of us who work in an organization and we, you know, the people that the people that are in the leadership of the organization, they may think, well, no, it's wonderful to work here because we do have hope and we have a mission here, a larger mission here at the organization, whatever that may be. But again, that may not be communicated as frequently or as concretely or succinctly as it needs to be and or, you know, given all the, the, the amount of buy-in that needs to happen. So you can't really just say, no, I'm going to be happy because my workplace allows me to. 
right? Yeah, no, it's it's true. And it, the higher you go in the organization, the farther you are away from the day-to-day reality of most people in your company. And that that's for sure. We call it CEO disease, and you don't have to be <laughs> a CEO to, to get that particular illness. So no, um, assuming that the organization's vision is motivating people is a big mistake. The best leaders, however, are really good at First of all, crafting a vision collectively, nobody does this by themselves, crafting a vision that people can own, crafting a vision of the future that is truly compelling, that hits people's values in a way that that makes them feel good and fulfilled as they move toward that vision so that the work aspect of their personal vision is really motivating. That's from the leadership angle of it in terms of, you know what? I, you know, someone's listening to this and they say, I don't want to have CEO disease. I want to be a great leader, you know, and that's great towards helping them create a, a workplace of happiness where people are fulfilled and they are energized and they don't dread going to their day job. But what about the people that work there that maybe want to, that, that, that have caught a glimpse of that possibility of, no, you know what? I think I can be happy here, wherever that here is for them. How do they start to interject these ideas into their workplace, maybe on the level they're at and or sending those vibes up into the leadership, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Good good question. Um, it's really hard to change a whole organization, change a culture, change the way things are done, even if you're at the tippy top uh, of the company. And it can be done, but it takes time. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And I've seen it done and seen it done well. Um, what we can all do, however, is shine a light around us. We can create a micro environment around us that is ripe with hope, um, where people feel that they can be themselves, that they're not trapped by the shoulds of life and work that really do get in the way of authentic communication. We can create an environment where people can share their values in a way that really supports good relationships and good work. Every single person can do that. And that light, it, yeah, if you're managing people, sure, you know, um, shine that light on your team. If you're not managing people, you can shine that light on your colleagues. And you know what? You can even reflect it upwards. And sometimes it's going gonna, it, gonna to actually work in that direction as well. Well, and this is where the friends thing kind of comes in, at least some to, to play some part in that is your coworkers having good relationships with them, uh, to go back to the office. Like so anybody who watched that long term, like, yeah, there was a lot of bad business practices going on there. One of the things that I always got out of that show was this heart that would constantly come up that these people that you're working with day in, day out are real people just like you. And even though this was a TV fictionalized character <laughs> ensemble right. cast, but they became family over time. That's exactly right. And there's another myth we need to get rid of. And that's the the myth that goes something like this. You can't be friends with the people at work. Uh, and that, well, first of all, we do have friends at work. It's just silly, you know, we do. And in the best of cases, we have several friends at work. And in the worst of cases, we've got enemies or toxic people around us. And that 
really truly doesn't help us be our best in the workplace or, or anywhere else. And well, what does it mean to be friends at work? Um, you know, I did a lot of reading on this. And what I discovered is there are a couple of things that we all need at work just as we need them in life. And they're very, very basic, kind of primal things that all human beings need. One of these is a sense of belonging. We need to feel that we are accepted for who we are, that we're valued for who we are. We need to feel that we're with people whom we respect, and that respect is reflected back to us. We need to feel that we're trusted and that we can trust others to get things done together, that we're heading for the same goals in the workplace, and that we're going to help each other along the way. So the number one is a feeling of belonging. And in the best teams, the strongest teams, that is palpable. It's a really powerful force that draws out the best in people, draws out generosity, generosity. It, it makes work fun. The other thing that we need, and this is a word that you don't often hear when we talk about business, we need love. Um, we need companionate love, as my colleague Sigal Barsad writes about in um, some of her pieces. She's at the Wharton School. Companionate love. That's the kind of love that you feel in a friendship, that you have in a friendship, where you're, there's some warmth, there's some caring, that we go beyond the tasks and get to know people a little bit better. And, you know, Eric, it doesn't mean that we have to go on vacation with our coworkers or take our boss out to dinner or, you know, even frankly have lunch with people. Not everybody likes to do those sorts of things. And that is not at all what friendships at work require. What friendships at work require is the willingness to see people for who they are and to find something in them to care about. And I think it's really important to note that we are all real people. And, you know, the worst saying that I've ever heard in business is, it's not personal. This is just business. Everything's personal when you put two people together. Oh, yes, exactly. And and that's the thing is, even when it, most times when you hear that saying, it has to do with it coming on the heels of somebody just feeling like something got personal. Well, it already was like whatever it was that brought up the you know, it's not personal, it's business phrase obviously was taken personally by one party or the other because of a lack of respect in the relationship or other, you know, downsides to treating people like just coworkers. Yep. Like just coworkers or worse yet, like machines who have no feelings. Yeah. And, and that's, that's kind of the key there. So, I mean, I, I kind of think of it as family. I think of it as, you know, there, there are members of my family extended in, in all directions where it's like, do I want to spend tons of time with them? No, but do I want to be involved with their lives? Yeah. And, and you know what? If I lived closer to them or, you know, spent, in other words, if I'm spending as much time with those people that matter, um, because they're in a workplace of mine, I probably should care at least enough about them to, at least have a healthy, at minimum, have a healthy relationship to get along with them and work well with them, right? That's exactly right. And and friendships at work can be built around the work. They can be built around digging deep and trying to understand 
what are our shared goals and what does this goal mean to you? And if we actually succeed together, what does that mean to you? How can we help each other? You can actually build really good relationships around the work. And as you go, getting to know people, getting to know their likes and their dislikes and their style and their way of approaching learning and their how they deal with conflict, all of the above really makes a difference. And when we take the time and make an effort to get to know people like that, people notice, people notice. And it, you know, it really does um, fill that relationship with a sense of we can do this together and you respect me. So I'm going to respect you. You trust me. I'm going to trust you. And then we can get work done together. This can be complicated even more so if you do work remotely like I do. In your studies, how have you found uh, building relationships in teams that are digitally connected uh, working out? Yeah, I I work uh, at home a lot too, Eric, so I'm very familiar with this. And, you know, oddly enough, there hasn't been enough scholarly research about virtual work relationships yet. We need more. What is out there is pretty consistent in saying that these relationships are relationships, number one. They are relationships and they need trust in order for the relationships to do what they're supposed to do, which is to get things done, right? And what I've discovered is that it takes a a little bit of effort and a little bit of time to build relationships, probably more time than if we're in the same building and bumping into each other in the hallway. Because we're, we're on the phone or we're on the computer, we're on a video call or something like that. And the tendency is to jump right into the task. I've done this myself. I know it's really tempting. Instead of a little bit of, of discussion at the beginning, hey, how are you? Where are you today? What's up with you? Are you working at home? Just that, you know, at 10 minutes with people on the phone or on video begins to establish a little bit of connection. And over time, that allows the conversation to get a bit bigger. What kind of values do we want to uphold in our virtual relationship? You know, how are we going to demonstrate trust, for example? Um, What does trust mean to you? Um, It doesn't mean consistency or does it mean timeliness? You know, it means different things to different people in the work context. And, And we can also determine what what norms, what guidelines, what rules of the road we want in our team or in our relationship, in our virtual relationships. Yeah, that's some of the stuff that I do uh, with my team and ideally try to do when I'm part of other teams is to have those connections and to foster them digitally, even if I do that in, say, like a, a, a digital way with, um, you know, one-on-one calls or having uh, time outside of the meeting. You right. Know, just to catch up. <laughs> right. A right. digital water cooler. Yep. Digital water cooler, time outside of the meeting. It's all good. And even in the meeting, you know, one uh, tip for our listeners um, institute what I call a check in at the beginning of a meeting, whether it's just two people or, or five or six or eight. Everybody just goes around and in 60 seconds just sort of downloads what's going on for me today. Well, I'm working at home and the dog's going to bark. <laughs> or, um, you know, I've had a tough day. That report that was due is not going to get in today and I'm feeling a little down about that. Or I've had a great day. And just that 60 seconds of sharing makes the group feel tighter and, and it builds that sense of belonging. And then you can get onto the work. 
Well, I think that this is a great place to land. I, I think that ultimately taking ownership in and of ourselves for our own happiness and not just expecting it to come from our workplace as an entitlement in the same way that they, you know, owe us our paycheck is a great way to, to move forward. We can definitely own our own purpose, our own hope, and our own relationships. I couldn't agree more, Eric. That's very, very true. I think it's time to stop waiting for uh, the boss or the company to do it for us. And let's do it ourselves. And if enough of us do, we will change that organizational culture. We will change the climate in our teams and in our organization. Definitely. So I I want to make sure that everybody can get a copy of your book, How to Be Happy at Work by Annie McKee. Annie, thank you so much for being here and talking with us. I'll link this all up in the show notes. And uh, what are you going to work on next? (laughs) Oh, that's a great question, Eric. Well, first of all, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. I I think what I'm going to work on next is getting even more concrete about how people can really find purpose in the work place can build hope and can create the best relationships they possibly can. Awesome. Well, I'm excited. Keep me posted when that next book that dives deeper in your work with that comes out and we can talk again. Thank you, Eric. So what do you think? Can you be happy at work? I think you can. I think it's a matter of perspective. It's also a matter of knowing the circumstances and taking ownership of your role in those responsibilities, those actions, those expectations that you have or that others have of you. Make sure to check out Annie McKee's book. You can find the link for that in the show notes. And thanks again to you, the listener, for listening. I've been receiving awesome emails from so many of you saying how much you've appreciated the shows that I've been doing recently. Thank you so much. That's really helpful to me to hear that. Thanks again for listening. I really appreciate it, and I will see you next episode.